thank you uh, for your uh, patience uh, with me as I was trying to get some ideas out there last night. Um, I added an extra 20 minutes to the talk that I had initially designed so that I might be able to, to be able to provide a good situational context to support uh, the good presentation that was given by Robert the night before. And uh, it's been a great delight for me to be here. They worked me today. Okay? I thought people in Boston worked hard, and I was like, man, they're working me. Uh, and uh, so this morning I spent time with uh, the women in the church. That was great. That was great. Had a lot of energy in the morning. And then that was for two hours. And then after that, I spent um, lunchtime with the pastors and some ruling elders and, and people and some of the men in the pastor's college. And then that was great too. Uh, and then after that, I spent time with the faculty at uh, the Trinity School right here. I was for another couple of hours. Then uh, they brought me back to the hotel and thought I'd be able to get a little break. And then I had a, a former uh, a staff member of mine who's planning a, a Redeemer uh, a campus uh, in Manhattan. And so I spent two hours talking with him and then went to dinner and had a, had a wonderful time. To, uh, and uh, Robert and his wife hosted me and had a, had a great meal. And it's, it's been all great. I'm getting to know some wonderful people, but kind of talked out. Um, <laughs> And then after this, I guess I'm supposed to spend some time with college students. <laughs> Who signed up for this? I talked to my assistant. He, he, did, not, he did not make it clear uh, to me. Um, so anyways, uh, tonight's talk is a, a talk that you might have heard uh, given in any of the learning labs uh, through Redeemer City to City. Uh, the material can be made available. Um, uh, in, uh, through many uh, uh, different uh, avenues. It's, it's the one that covers missional living. What does it mean to be a missional Christian? What does it mean to be a uh, missional uh, church? And I think that this is uh, important for us to uh, consider. Now, there are a few clarifications that I wanted to provide from yesterday. Um, I understand when I talk about the city, I'm talking primarily about center city, but sometimes I use the term to, to mean many urbanists understand city to be somewhat synonymous with the culture of ideas. Right? So, so Lexington is not a, a northeastern city where there is a highly populated, densely uh, um, a dense uh, region in the center part of the city where there's a lot of commerce and, and uh, people who live in close proximity, right? So, so I understand that. But, but nevertheless, uh, there are all sorts of cultural ideas that are emerging from Lexington. Right? So people who want to, to receive treatment uh, and they need to go to the oncology department, they're, they're going to go somewhere that's... a a medical center that's affiliated with the university, right? That's just the way it works. The, the, the vision that I threw out there, I don't know where Robert is, but the vision I threw out there, uh, I told him, I said, Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, TCPC. Could this church possibly be that regional hub, the way for Lexington, the way the university is for the city? Um, that's, a, that's a 
pretty big vision to have. I understand that's my thought. <laughs> and and I, I'm just saying that I think that this church has the capacity, I believe. You'd have to make some strategic adjustments. So ruling elders, we'll, we'll talk later. But, but, but I think, I think uh, some adjustments can be made. But, but this is the way you need to be thinking if you want to shape the culture with a gospel and biblical worldview for the cause of the kingdom of God in Christ. And, and in order for that to happen, you need to be Christians. You need to be a gospel community of God's grace that is willing to live contextually in missional living. And uh, these are some of the things that we're going to uh, consider. Um, in the West, for nearly a thousand years, uh, institutions of society, even in the United States, all the way up until 1900s, and there was the Death of God movement, but, but even after that, until the 70s, it, we lived, as I mentioned last night, a Christianized society, Christianized people. And of course, there are advantages um, to living uh, in a context such as that because you have a common language for public moral discourse. So in the public square, you're able to communicate and to articulate and find a point of reference because people all agree with you on basic definitions about the existence of God, the historical reality of Jesus Christ, the, the historical resurrection, about the forgiveness of sins and, and the reality of hell. And, and, and having a biblical sexual ethic, even though people might not necessarily agree or commit to those realities, at least there is a common a point of reference. So that, that, that is an advantage uh, that you have. But we don't live in a world like that anymore. You don't even live in a world like that here in Lexington. There are certain few, few Christendom pockets where you still have that as a reality. But overall, in our country, we are a secular country. And all the cities uh, in our union are secular. Now again, I mean, you can look at that and say, oh no, you know, we're, we're doomed, we're in, in big trouble. Or you can say, what kind of a contextual vision can we find in order to bring a robust gospel vision and theological vision into a secular world. Now again, I, I told you that this is one of the reasons why there is a cultural crisis in the church where, because there's disagreement on this where the fortification Christians will say, no, 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 no. If we do that, then we're going to compromise our orthodoxy. And certainly there have been instances where that has happened. Okay, so let's be fair. People have had good intentions and they've gone in and they've accommodated and assimilated and over-contextualized. I understand that. But that still doesn't excuse us from recognizing the responsibility of engaging our culture with the truth of the gospel. The question is, how are we going to do this? And how are we going to do this in a healthy fashion that does not compromise our biblical orthodoxy on the one hand, but does not cause us to under-adapt in our, in our pursuit of ignoring or being indifferent or fortifying 
our own interests at the sake of, uh, of not being salt to the earth and light to the world. Okay, so there's, there's always that tension. I, I understand that. Leslie Newbegin, uh, who was an Anglican uh, missiologist, left the United Kingdom to go to India to do ministry. And he clearly knew when he went to a foreign country, although, as you know, uh, the United States is not the largest English-speaking country in the world, right? You know that, right? It's India. Uh, and pretty soon, China's going to pick up the language uh, because English is pretty easy compared to Mandarin. And they probably will become uh, the largest English-speaking country in the world. But, um, and so, but he knew when he was going into a foreign culture that he, he would have to check his home cultural assumptions before he entered into the host culture. That's, that's, that's something you really, if, if you're thinking about doing doctoral work overseas and you go to a university, let's say Tübingen or, or Munich or Basel in Germany, you clearly know that you're going to go in there, you're going to have to uh, adjust, you're going to have to learn the language, and you're going to have to learn the customs, you're going to have to do things the German way, which will be very precise. You know, you, you need to realize that you need to adjust. You can't just kind of do it on the fly, Yankee ingenuity. You know, the Germans will choke you out on that kind of stuff, right? And so that's why they make the ultimate machine, you know, and that's the difference between that and Chevrolet. But, but the point is, <laughs> the point is that when you enter into a foreign host culture, you bring the assumptions of your home cultural baggage and background, and you understand that you need to adjust. So Leslie Newbigin obviously realized that that was, that was what the case uh, was, although we as vacationers, when we go on holiday, being the typical loud, obnoxious American, you know, we go into European countries where we go to the village side and most of them speak English, right? I mean, the only uh, 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 culture that, that's monolingual is America. <laughs> you know, everywhere else they're trilingual or bilingual, right? Uh, but we're the only monolingual country. But, but, but the point is, is that we go in there and what do we do? We just kind of force our kind of the way we do things into, a, into the host uh, culture. I remember I did that. I mean, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to, to Scotland. You know, we speak the same language. And I, I went there, and my Scottish friends told me, oh, you don't, you don't speak the king's language the way we speak the king's language. And they made it very, very clear to me. Uh, that, 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 and at that moment, I realized, wow, even though we share a common bond in terms of having the recognition of our lingua franca, that, 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 that I came from a different culture. And so we need to make that adjustment. And so we know that. It's obvious. However, when Leslie Newbegin, after many decades of, of serving the people in India, came back to the United Kingdom, he realized during the short period while he was gone that his own country had made a major cultural shift, that he had come back to a post-modern, post-Christian culture. It was no longer a Christianized nation. You know that there are more uh, uh, Muslims who attend mosques in the UK than there are Christians. You know that, right? Even though Anglicanism is, is the official uh, religion in England and, uh, and Scottish Presbyterianism in Scotland. And so he realized that, that there was a major cultural shift. And so what he came to realize was, even though I came back to my own home culture, that this new home culture, which is now my post 
Christian host culture is different than what I had known prior to my departure. And so the adjustments that he needed to make when he entered into a foreign nation such as India was the same adjustment that he needed to make when he came back into his own country, which had changed over a few decades. So for us as Christians, as we consider this major cultural shift, we cannot simply be a church that engages our culture primarily on the level of evangelism. Don't mishear me. Evangelism is important and necessary. But we tend to think that, oh, the only way that Christians can engage culture is through evangelism. But that kind of a church will not engage in cultural renewal. Because, remember I told you, if we have an overly reductionistic view of the gospel, and we're only concerned about the issues of evangelism, conversion, and, and all that. And, and we need to be, I'm not saying we ought to minimize that, but if that's all we're concerned about, then we're not going to be concerned about incarnational ministry and helping those people who are marginalized. We're not going to be concerned about cultural renewal because we don't recognize the already not yet tension of the resurrection uh, that has occurred in the person of Jesus Christ and how everything will be made new perfectly at the very end when the new Jerusalem descends and we have the new heavens and the new earth. So we need churches that are, and again, I'll use this word, and some people don't like the word, but I'll use it. We need missional churches. We need missiological churches. We need churches that are not just thinking about evangelism programs, and we, for most of us, we're like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to share the gospel, and it's what you call evangelism cop-out. Like evangelism, like gift justification. It's like, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Oh, but, but. That pastor over there or that deacon, oh, they have the gift of evangelism. Uh, and so let them do all the, hey, I'll support it. You know, I'll give a little to that, but that's not what I'm being called to do. However, the problem is that we're all called to evangelize and to preach the gospel and to share the gospel. It's, it's like when people say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like I don't have the gift of generosity. I have the, I have the gift of spending, but... Not, not the gift of sharing. So, so that person over there is radically generous and, and, and let that person exit. No, it doesn't work that way. All of us as Christians, we need, to, we need to give generously. Now, I'm speaking as a local pastor. Your pastor did not tell me to say this, but I'll just say it on the side here. Okay? It's a church of about 1,000, 1,200 people. The budget's too small. Budget's way too small. Our church is slightly smaller than this, and I'm not bragging about my church, but our church budget is larger. And we're in the city of Boston. So all I'm trying to say is, I think that you all need to consider, if you understand the generosity of what Christ has done, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he who was rich became poor, so those of you, uh, so, so that, the, that the poor might become rich in him, I think that needs to stretch uh, the capacity within our hearts to know how to be able to steward our financial resources well. You see how there was like complete silence when I started to talk about money? Yeah, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so here are some of the things that we need to consider. Okay? Uh, the elements of what it means to be a, a missional 
culturally engaging disciple and gospel community of, uh, of, the, of grace. First is, we need to discourse in the vernacular. I remember when Tim Keller first talked about this, discourse in the vernacular. We're like, Tim, could you please discourse in the vernacular about discoursing in the vernacular? Um, it just means that we need to speak and understand the receptor's language. That we need to understand their context. Let's be very careful here. I did not say de-biblicize our language. If only pastors and preachers and Christians would use biblical language in their prayers and in their understanding of the world and, and in, when they preach, oh, wouldn't that be great? I'm talking about stylized, evangelical, pious jargon and tribal language. Could we please get rid of that? It's unnecessary. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like Vulcan. You, you, I mean, it's like somebody who comes off the street who's a mildly curious skeptic is going to be like, what? what? What's he talking about? Right, what's, what's this clap offering? What, what is that? So you have to, don't use language that's not in the Bible. Just use plain biblical language and just talk like common people. Discourse in the vernacular. Don't use evangelical, subcultural, tribal, religious jargon, Christianese kind of language that, if I may say so, and don't get touchy on me now, is a little nauseating. I remember listening to a commentary about how Christianity engages culture. I, I, I remember hearing this many, many years ago, and it's helpful, and I'll, I'll use it here. Christianity depending on its social location, its cultural location. Christianity, depending on its cultural location, so whenever I say that, think of your particular cultural social setting. Christianity, depending on its location, can be either radically subversive or horribly reactionary. So that is, if you are in a cultural setting, that has a strong authoritative um, uh, totalizing discourse or institution or governmental system, then Christianity in that social setting is going to seem radically subversive or liberal and progressive. On the other hand, in an individualistic uh, uh, setting like ours, a consumeristic setting like ours, in the West or in the United States, it's going to seem horribly reactionary and socially regressive. Why? Because in a, in a social context that places a great amount of emphasis on the authority of the state, they think that the state is the ultimate arbiter for determining what is right and wrong. And Christianity says, no, that's not true. God is. And they're like, hey, 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 you're not going to fall in line here with kind of the state structures on this. I have to follow what God says. So it seems, it seems radically, radically subversive. On the other hand, in an overly individualistic a culture like ours, that says... Well, yeah, it's not the state that's the ultimate arbiter. 
but it is the individual who is the ultimate author for determining what is right and what is wrong about the issues of morality. And so when Christianity says, no, that's not true, it's God. They say, who, who is God to kind of speak into my life? And what, what, is, the, what is one of the major storylines in, uh, in our secular, individualized, consumeristic society? What is it? There are several things, but one of the, the big storylines is no one's ever going to take away my rights. Don't tell me how to live my life. I want to be an autonomous individual, independent. I don't want any, I don't even want God. I certainly don't want the pastor. I, I don't want leaders in the church. I don't even want my wife or my husband to kind of speak into my life. You know, that doesn't help the marriage, you know. Like, like you signed up for that, right? That they had the right to kind of speak into your life. So we don't like that. I don't want people tell me how to live my life. I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. So, so this is what philosophers call a absolute negative freedom. That's the view, right? Of course, most of us don't know that. We just kind of engage in it. But absolute negative freedom means that this is the way we've always understood freedom, that, that we, are, we have been freed towards something good, that we can make some sort of meaningful contribution, right? Freedom towards something good. But this view is not a positive view of freedom, but it is a negative freedom. It's an absolute negative freedom, which says it's not freedom towards something good, but it is freedom from constraint. I don't want any constraints. I don't, I don't want people to tell me. Right? This, this is kind of the, this is the, the late modern, this is the storyline of our culture, except in the case of the harm principle, that is, that, oh, okay, if, if exercising my freedom is going to cause some sort of harm for someone else, then I'm willing to relent and, and kind of allow that to happen because, you know, I'm a gracious person and I, I want that to happen. But the problem is, is that you have a value-laden filter to determine what is harmful. Hmm. Who determines that? Who determines what's harmful? I thought you didn't have a moral system. I thought you didn't believe in some sort of moral good that will tell you what is good and what is wrong. You see, that, that kind of view becomes self-negating philosophically because it's very hard to support that when you all of a sudden want to invoke the harm principle. It's like, who knows what is harmful, right? I, th I, th I thought you, by the way, why are you telling me that what I'm doing is harmful? Who are you to tell me? Are you trying to restrict my freedom to tell you what I think is harmful and what is not? You see, you see how this is self-negating. It's self-contradictory. It, it defies uh, the law of non-contradiction. You can draw the Venn diagrams. I mean, it just doesn't cohere. It's not logical. And so what this means is, depending on your social location, that, the, that Christianity or the church or the gospel will always seem right to those people who are left, that's on the ideological spectrum, or they will always seem left to those people who are on the right. To those people who are on the right, who are a little rigid, who are a little bit authoritarian, we're like a bunch of loose people who just like let anything go and, and there's no, there are no boundaries and it's just like free spirits, oh no, we gotta, we gotta contain these crazy people. But to those people who are on the left, it's like, oh, Christianity seems they're a little too to the right. So, oh, these people seem to be very, very legalistic and rigid and, and self-righteous. 
So depending on your social location, Christianity is going to seem extremely radically subversive on the one hand or horribly reactionary. Are you following? Maybe except for the negative, absolute negative. Um, but so, so that's why the Bible is radical. Even about the, the, the views on and, and the relationship between men and women. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandment. Uh, Ten Commandments. That uh, when it says you need to honor your father and mother, in an ancient Near Eastern world, they would never include the mother. Honor your father. Wow. Ten Commandments included honor your father and mother? See, it's a lot more progressive than you think. You need to understand the social setting to see the liberating power and the progressive nature of Christianity, even the way they understood genders many, many millennia ago. Number two, so we need to discourse uh, uh, in the uh, vernacular. Second, is we need to, and this I borrow this idea from um, Lamin Sane, who is, uh, who is an African scholar uh, from the small Western African country called Gambia, uh, which is like right in, next to Senegal. And, and he is a very thoughtful thinker who teaches at Yale. And the only reason why I say he's African is because sometimes we need an objective voice, someone who is not from our home culture in order to kind of speak objective truth <laughs> into our culture. I think, again, I've said a lot today, so if I'm repeating things, you know, I'm sorry for those of you who have been following me around, stop stalking me. But, um, <laughs> but, but I would say, if you want to know what water is like, don't ask the fish. That's the natural habitat. The, the fish doesn't know, okay? So you need to ask somebody who has an objective view. So that's what Lamin Sane does. He's also from Yale, so that helps. Um, and, and, and this is what he says. He says that when we engage in good communication, we need to, first of all, enter into the person's storyline. That's the first thing that we do. And secondly, we need to challenge it. And thirdly, retell the story. Right? And so, so others have kind of modified that. and say, retell the story in light of the gospel. Oz Guinness, the, the, the brilliant English thinker, he says, he says there are four ingredients to good communication. And he's written a wonderful book called uh, The Art of Persuasion or something like that, an excellent book uh, on some of you who are involved and in, interested in, in, in the theory of communication. And he, and he says there are four important ingredients in good communication. Number one uh, is identification. So that is you need to find a point of reference. You need to identify with someone. You need to identify, you need to enter into their worldview. Secondly, it's uh, translation. It needs to be communicated in a way that is comprehensible. Okay, so no Vulcan tribal language, but use biblical language and then explain it. Okay, so, so you got to keep your pastors accountable, make sure they don't use the word eschatological in the church unless they define it. Okay, so leave that in the classroom for Bible study, but not necessarily here because the skeptics go, well, what? 
What's that? What is it? Esketa what? And so you need to define these things, right? Discourse in the vernacular. So you need translation. Thirdly, you need to uh, have persuasion. It needs to be articulated in a way that's persuasive. And fourthly, justification. That is explaining to the people why they ought to believe what you are trying to share with them. And so Lam Insani says you need to enter. And the problem with most Christians, not only Christian preachers, but all of you as you're communicating with your friends and with your family members and, and colleagues, whatever the setting might be, is that we just go straight into uh, destabilizing the person's worldview. We don't take time to enter and to find the point of reference and identify. We don't do that. So, so what we tend to do is or what, let me just kind of pick on preachers, but this is what we do also. Preacher will go up there and say, you know, say, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, or they'll say something about him, and, uh, he, and he might not have even ever have read the primary uh, source, but uh, say something like, in thus spake Zarathustra, you know, this is kind of what he says about the metamorphosis of this and this and this and that, and, uh, and he just will kind of challenge and break it down without ever trying to find a point of reference, especially with Nietzsche. If we have more philosophers like Nietzsche, because Nietzsche was an extremely consistent, committed nihilist, which means that he was consistent to his logic, unlike kind of postmodern philosophers that, that are so, so weak logically. And so, so what you need to do is, if you're going to reference someone, you say, you know, what Nietzsche said about this is extremely helpful. But here's the problem with that view. You need to find the point of reference. And then destabilize the point, respectfully, and then challenge it and communicate that in light of the gospel. Uh, we need to understand uh, people's uh, social context to be able to appreciate that. So let me give you another, another uh, example of what this looks like. Um, so when I was living in Scotland, uh, my, um, my eldest daughter, who was around six years old, was in pre-form one or two, I forgot what, what, what that is, kind of in between grade before uh, uh, kindergarten and, and first, in the first grade. She came home to me uh, one day and she said, again, she also had acquired a nice kind of, kind of inflection, Scottish inflection. I said, Daddy, um, what am I? Am I American or am I Chinese? Okay, so have I shared this story? Okay, okay. For, for a moment there, I said, oh, I, I shared this last night. Um, that's the preacher's nightmare. You know, you're kind of caught in that situation. Um, and uh, I said, so what am I? Am I an American or am I Chinese? And I said, honey, um, the last time I checked, you're not Chinese. My ethnicity is Korean, by the way. Um, and, and my wife's ethnicity is, is Korean. And I said... The last time I checked, you're not Chinese. You look very Chinese, but, but you know, all Asians look alike. But, but, we, <laughs> but we are, you know, your, you, your nationality is American. So don't go to a kind of uh, an immigrant or some ethnic person and ask them, what's your nationality? What's your nationality? Especially if they've been nationalized. Uh, naturalized. We're American. Okay, so what you're really trying to ask is what's your ethnicity. So anyways, I have to correct people all the time on that. So, so your nationality is American, but your ethnicity is, yes, you're Asian or, or you're Korean. And she was like, okay, no, no big deal. And she thought that was a completely adequate answer. It was her friend by the name of Angus, 
If you have a name like Angus, shouldn't be asking tough questions like that, okay? And this was, this was a nice little English boy with a Scottish name, you know? Go figure. Um, and so, so I decided to have kind of an existential conversation with her. She wasn't interested. I said, stay here, stay here, listen. Um, and I said, for me, I had a completely different experience. Um, I'm old enough to have grown up in an all-white neighborhood where I experienced discrimination and prejudice. And, uh, but I, I don't have an angry yellow man chip on my shoulder, so it's okay. Um, and so I told her, for me, I struggled with my identity formation all my life. I said, what am I? Am I an American? Westerner? Individualistic? Or am I Asian? Eastern, communal, which am I? And I, and I wrestled with this over and over again uh, until I got into college and had a, a, one of the, the, the most brilliant instructors in my life up to that point and probably one of the top three in my life, uh, my pedagogical mentor, Peter Berger. Some of you who, are, who know about sociology and pedagogy, he's a brilliant, a brilliant uh, thinker, probably the, the premier scholar in uh, the sociology of religion. But anyways, Peter Berger, Austrian, you know, in classroom smoking his cigarette and, and uh, violating all sorts of school policies. But, but <laughs> and speaking with his thick German accent, and, uh, and, and he would talk to us about the difference between modern and traditional cultures. And he said, for traditional cultures, they're all about uh, understanding what it means to receive honor. So, so it's a shame-based culture, that's the opposite of honor, and they are very concerned about receiving uh, communal approval and communal responsibility. That's what traditional cultures are. On the other hand, modern cultures are more about obtaining dignity through self-identification and personal achievement. And because we live in a modern secular world, we're more concerned about dignity and the opposite of dignity will be guilt, the opposite of shame, uh, honor will be shame. That honor can only be received, but dignity is something that can be obtained. So for consumeristic, individualistic, secular people, modern people, that we are doing everything within our power to obtain dignity because deep inside we know we're empty. We're trying to stuff our hearts, stuff our lives with dignity. We want to know that we matter, that we're significant, that we're consequential, not inconsequential. We want to know that we have value to, to our to our existence. So, so as I was thinking about my identity, I said, ah, oh, and, and of course, ultimately, this was something that I found. It was, it was a summary of what he had written in his book, The Homeless Mind. And I said, now I understand why it's been such a challenge for me to understand my own identity formation. Because for me, it was a bicultural struggle. I always wanted to receive honor, and communal approval. For many of us as Asians, we never heard growing up from our parents, I love you, son. Never heard it. Did, did my parents love me? Of course they did. It would have been nice to hear it, though, once in a while. Proud of you, son. Never heard it. Different culture. And so I'm always trying to 
prove to my parents, hey, I'm good enough, I'm gonna, and try to receive honor. But on the other hand, I'm like an individualistic Western secular American, and so I'm trying to obtain dignity through my own self-identification and the pursuit of, of performance and achievement. So when you are speaking into a setting or into a person's life, the point I'm trying to make is you need to know their story. If you don't, then you're just going to come in and assume what you assume about that person's narrative, and it might not be true. It might not be true. Um, I think we have one uh, faculty member who, who teaches uh, communication at, at Kentucky, and uh, she'll appreciate the fact that I'm quoting Kraft uh, uh, on the theory of communication. But, but there are four different ways that we can understand four possibilities for good communication. One is having a sender-oriented posture, so, so the sender, it's, so I'm speaking and so it's all about me, sender-oriented, and a, and a message-centered talk. So sender-oriented, message-centered. Now when you just hear that, you might be like, that, that kind of sounds like what we're supposed to do, or you, what you're supposed to do as a preacher, but listen to the other possibilities. Another approach to communication would be sender-oriented, but context-centered. Not message-centered, but context-centered. And you're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want, con we don't want to over understand the context. You've got to get the message in there, right? So you're like, okay, that, that might not work for us. Or another option might be receptor-oriented, the person who's hearing the message, receptor-oriented and not sender-oriented, and context-centered. And you're like, oh yeah, that one, that one absolutely that we will reject. Now if I were to tell you choose one out of the three for how we ought to communicate our understanding of what it means to engage in missional living or to communicate the gospel, live out a gospel life uh, to a secular world, out of those three, you probably would have chosen the first one. But I don't think that that is the model that we see in Scripture. Here's the fourth option. It is receptor-oriented and message-centered. Why do we say it that way? Because when you look at the model of the incarnation, God did not say that in order for us to communicate and to, be, and to connect to one another, you're going to have to come to my level. He came down to our level through the incarnation. He was in the form of God, but he, he did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to tightly, but emptied himself and became nothing and gave him up, himself up uh, in obedience, even to the obedience, humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. So he was, he was, he was absolutely receptor-oriented, however, it was still message-centered. It was still about himself. And I believe that that is a beautiful a picture of how we ought to engage in communication. So let me give you a few examples, okay? That was theory. Let me give you a few examples of what this looks like in my context and see if it, it helps yours. I believe that everyone, every human being is a worshiper. I used this illustration in one of the, uh, the morning sessions. Every individual is a worshiper. And uh, so every city, the reason why it's important is because it's the center of power, center of culture, and center of worship. I didn't get a chance to talk about that last night. But we are all worshipers. 
It's not as though only the religious and the Christians worship, but everyone worships. The question is, what is the object of our worship? Did I talk about this last night? Okay. And so I usually give the illustration of Leonard Bernstein, the great uh, classical composer and pianist, who passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Brilliant, brilliant uh, composer, uh, atheistic Jew. And this is what he said about Beethoven. He said, Tchaikovsky, Ravel, Chopin, yeah, they, they were all right. Nothing like Beethoven. When you listen to Beethoven's music, the note that you hear is absolutely the perfect note that follows the preceding note every single time. When I listen to Beethoven, everything is right with the world. That's his welfare. That's his shalom. That's his shalomic state. You know what that is? You know what, what Bernstein is showing us? That's worship. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, what is the object of our worship? For some of you, your, your, your object of your worship uh, or the, your functional God or your counterfeit hope is your work. Ernest Becker would say in his book, The Denial of Death, if you were to say it this way as it relates to work and your kind of uh, uh, workaholic tendencies would be that you have an apocalyptic professionalism, apocalyptic careerism in you. That your career is too important to you. So if anything violates your career, even your marriage or your relationship with your children or because the career you identify your essence with what you do and the more you perform and the greater net value that you have and the wonderful portfolio that you have, then you all of a sudden you can view yourself as being extremely valuable and meaningful. And Ernest Becker will call that apocalyptic careerism. So, so it's like kind of like if, if that starts crumbling, it's like, oh no, the world is falling apart. Because you find your identity in that. Or if relationships mean too much. For some of you, um, there might be some, some single people. Are there some single people here? Just imagine when you were single. There's some single people here, right? And all of you seem beautiful, attractive, and um, you know, emotionally well balanced and all that, right? But 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 um, now that I, I'm 50, my um, my vision has been weakened uh, over the years. I can't see you very well, but let's just assume that that's the case. Um, that that for some of you. You define your value by what kind of relationship you're in. So if you're single for too long, you're like, hey, what's wrong with me? You know, why isn't people, why aren't any guys interested in me? Or you know, why am I not in a dating relationship? My aunt Sally keeps coming to me and says, you know, it's okay. So what's okay? Oh, it's okay. You're 29, but, but somebody will come along. It's okay, Aunt Sally. I'm perfectly happy being single. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure you are. I know. It's okay. <laughs> So it's not good to live near extended family for these reasons. <laughs> there are other reasons too. But. Um, so everyone's a worshiper. Did you also know that everyone is an evangelist? Everyone proselytizes. Whenever I hear a skeptic coming and saying, you know what I hate about Christianity is that you proselytize. You're in everyone's feet. You got to tell everyone this is the only way. You got to believe in Jesus and all that. You know, okay, well, just kind of let us kind of live our own lives. You know, why do you have to be in our lives and, and tell us this and whatnot? I said, like 
you don't evangelize? I mean, what do you think happens when somebody gets extremely excited about a new restaurant or a new product? Oh my goodness, it's like they're insufferable. I mean, they'll say, you got, you got to get this program. PX90, oh man, look, look at me. Right? So like you're the before picture, I'm the after. I mean, like I did it for 90 days, I'm ripped. You got to do this. And I'm like, wow, if you can be this, this excited and passionate about the gospel, boy, there will be hope in the world. He's, he's trying to share his good news. He's evangelizing. Stop proselytizing. Everyone's an evangelist. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, what is the object of your worship and what is the content of your evangelism? So, so we need to enter into the story and to show, not just tell, but to demonstrate and show people that this is the case, to have meaningful conversation. Here's another one. The uniqueness of Christ. We live in a religiously pluralistic world. So people say, oh, it must be so hard in a state like Massachusetts, in the most secular, pagan, right, Boston has been considered, the number two pagan city in North America. Just kind of go around with a pagan barometer and just kind of like, okay, okay. What's the dew, what's the dew point of secularism here? You know what I mean? And, and so Boston, next to Vancouver, has been selected as the number two most pagan secular city in North America. And we are also probably the number one most biblically illiterate uh, city in North America. Top five, actually, they're all in New England. Right? Burlington, Vermont, Hartford, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Portland, Maine. Boston, Massachusetts. I don't know how Albany got in there, but Albany, okay, we give one for those New Yorkers, you know. One for Albany. Um, it's, it must be so hard to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. I said, no, it's very, very easy to do. So what do you mean? How do you talk to people about the narrowness of the gospel? Oh, you, Christians are so narrow-minded. Saying that there's only one option. I like the multiplicity of options. And I, want to, I like to choose. Although, according to Barry Schwartz, uh, uh, humanities professor at Bryn Mawr, in his book, Paradox of Choice, it says that we get paralyzed by the multiplicity of options. Anyways, that's, that's a different point. But, so I say it like this. 30% to 35% of our folks are in healthcare, in medicine, or postdoc, fellowship, pharmaceutical scientists, right? Nerdy, geeky people. And so, so I tell them, hey, you were a biology or organic chemistry major. You declared yourself pre-med. And after studying for many hours and preparing for the MCAT, the entrance exam into medical school, you applied to 30 because even the third tier medical school's acceptance rate um, is 3%. So you gotta apply to 30, hoping that you'll get into at least one. Um, and then once you get into medical school, you study in the institution, and you graduate after four years with a degree that says doctor of medicine. Not that anyone would ever consider you a real doctor, but you've got the degree. I wouldn't let you come near me if I were sick, but that's what you've got. And then you go into the hospital for one year of internship and three years of residency. And after that, after you make mistakes and 
and work on people. Okay, sorry for those of you physicians, okay? I, I have some true credibility on this, okay? Uh, I, I spend a lot of time, I read the Journal of, uh, of American Medical Association. <laughs> I, I've got one of every kind of physician I've had. I've been in the surgery room and broken the sterile field. Yeah, I've, I've been a nuisance. I've done all that. And so, um, and so after you graduate, for those of you from the hospital with the residency, uh, some of you consider doing one or two years of a specialty and you do a fellowship at some other hospital and then you are done and you become a real attending, you pursue your own practice or you do research, do clinical work in the hospital or, or whatnot. That, that road is not broad. Extremely narrow. If there's anything worth pursuing in life like medicine, it's going to be narrow. Wouldn't it be absurd for somebody to come to you and say, oh, well, you decided to go into medicine? Must be a narrow-minded person. Who would choose that path? If medicine is that important, if entering into the kingdom of God, dealing with the ultimate issues are far more, exponentially more important than medicine, makes all the sense in the world for God to say that the road to eternal life is narrow and the road to destruction is broad. Makes all the sense in the world. Could you imagine if your wife came to you and said, or let's say, let's pick on the husbands, okay? Because I don't like picking on the wives, right? Because they put up with us, right? So I'll pick on the husbands. So... Wives, could you imagine if your husband came to you and said, honey, we've been married for 20 years. You know, that's solid 20 years. And I love you, and, and I'm committed to you. I'm not, I'm not saying that I want to get out of this, because you're good to me. But can we kind of diversify our interests? How, how about if, not all the time, but once in a while, I were to kind of go over there and to consider engaging in another relationship and, and, uh, and developing another friendship with someone else over here. What would you say to that? Now, we're living, right? It's 20, hashtag 27, it's 2017. We're like, hey, come on, we're a lot more open and progressive. What would you say to that? Initially, there'll be some colorful vocabulary that will come out and some things will be thrown at him. And, you know, and the, but but you, you say, this is absurd. Are you going to say, I'm so glad you asked. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> now, are you going to go, to go to the wife in that circumstance and say, you're being so narrow-minded. Be more open-minded. What's wrong with you? Hashtag is 2017. What I'm trying to, you see what I did? I try to find real life examples to show, you know what? If you, do, if you don't think that the way the wife responded to the husband is, 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 uh, is, uh, is completely normal and sane, then why would you, when God says the same thing, say, oh, that's kind of odd of God to tell us that we can only be committed to one God? Oh, it's narrow-minded for people who study something narrow, such as medicine. You need to enter into people's worldview, destabilize it, 
and retell the story, restabilize it in light of the gospel. Or here's another one. Yeah, I don't know how I'm doing for time, but I'm close. What is another cultural storyline that we find in our society besides the absolute negative freedom? What else? Diversity. Okay? Now, there is a legitimate understanding and use of diversity. So we don't want to beat up on diversity too much because diversity is a beautiful thing. But again, this is one of the storylines of our culture, diversity. I won't say much about, about kind of uh, a gender identity and, and, and so on here, but um, what I find inconsistent is for people who embrace diversity, when it comes to gender diversity, why do you not accept gender binary? Why do you reject the reality of two sexes and two genders? Okay? So, of course, we're supposed to love our gay neighbors, and, and for some of you who struggle with your uh, struggle with same-sex attractions, uh, same-sex attraction, of course, we as a church, we, we're here, and we need to talk about this, and, 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 and we need to support and, and, uh, and to, to help you work through what, what, whatever those issues might be. But, but again, but the point is, is that the Bible's pretty clear. Bible is not ambiguous about this issue because it recognizes and, and, and recognizes the beauty of the diversity of genders, which actually coheres with the cultural storyline of our culture about wanting diversity. But of course, our culture says, oh, we want diversity everywhere else, but not when it comes to gender identification. I find that extremely inconsistent. Um, but but look at like all the diversity that we have in Scripture, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, when you look at the word university, it's a combination of two words. It's finding unity in diversity. University, right? We don't have many universities right now, right? There's no core discipline that brings everything together. We have pluriversities. But, but the Scripture loves all of the differences that we have. If you go to Acts chapter 16, the very first church, as far as I can tell, the first church that was planted in Europe, in Philippi. Look at the diversity there. Just quickly go through this. Number one, you had gender diversity. You had men and women. You had Lydia and the slave girl and a jailer. They came from very, very different backgrounds, different gender diversity. Secondly, there was also ethnic diversity. Lydia was a God-fearing Gentile from Thyatira, Thyatira, which is modern-day Turkey, which means that she was Asian. She was a, she, um, and you have the slave girl who's presumably Greek and the jailer who was a Roman citizen. So you've got three individuals who come from three different national cultures. So there's racial and national diversity. You also have socioeconomic diversity. Lydia was an affluent businesswoman. She was a seller of purple goods. She was self-sufficient as a businesswoman. She was dealing in coveted materials. The slave girl was poor and powerless. And then you had the, the Philippian jailer who was part of the working class. I know it breaks all the stereotypes. <laughs> okay. 
You also have spiritual diversity. You had Lydia who was a God-fearer. You have a slave girl who was spiritually oppressed. And you have a jailer who is somewhat interested. You had different temperamental styles. Lydia was more like a modern person. She was rational and had an intellectual need. You had the slave girl who was more postmodern and had a psychological need. She was more, more intuitive. And you had uh, the traditionalist who was the jailer who had a moral need and it was more practical. I know it breaks stereotypes that Lydia was the intellectual one. The Bible is full. The very first church in Europe was a diverse church. And that's what's beautiful about what we find in the gospel. Um, the head of the Jewish household would use the same prayer every morning. It was a terrible prayer, but the prayer went like this. I give thanks to you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Because these were marginalized people in the Jewish world. But what do you have in the Philippian church? A Gentile, a woman, and a slave. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And quickly, and I'm just going to brush on this because I believe somebody is presenting this tomorrow. Thirdly, to be a missional Christian and a missional counter uh, cultural uh, community of God's grace, uh, you need to theologically train lay people for public life and vocation. Okay? So that is, we can't just simply catechize and disciple our people about the issues of piety. Although, again, that's important. I'm not saying let's stop the Bible studies and the prayer meetings and, and, the, and the, the praise nights and the corporate worship. No, absolutely, that's essential. But I'm saying in addition to that, we also need to theologically train lay people for public, public life and vocation, recognizing cultural practices uh, within the context of common grace. And, th and lastly, and this is my last point, and I want to give a couple of biblical illustrations, uh, is to create Christian community of God's grace, which is counter-cultural and counter-intuitive. Uh, that we need to be a community of God's grace. Um, when was the last time you heard a song about grace? I think I mentioned this in the women's group today. There aren't many songs about grace, like saying, oh God, I, you know, I was in this relationship and I appreciated your unmerited favor. <laughs> People talk about love and they sing about love, but they don't think about or understand grace. Because love, and there's a difference between love and grace. And here's a def definition I borrow and it's been helpful. Love is doing something good to someone who has a need. So I'm sure many of us have been loving this week, whether to our spouses or to our children or to somebody. You were able to be loving to somebody who had a particular need. Grace, on the other hand, is doing good to someone who deserves the opposite. So they deserve like punishment. They deserve discipline. They deserve judgment. <laughs> they deserve criticism. They deserve all of that, but rather than giving them what they deserve, you're willing to be gracious. I'm not sure if many of us have engaged in gracious activity this week. Loving, yes, but gracious, 
not sure. We're called to be a Christian community of God's grace, which is countercultural and counterintuitive. This is what we're called to be. Again, it's grace to the weak, not power to the strong. It is recognizing that God is willing to use weak people, and therefore, if we recognize that, that we're willing to move out from that and not boasting in ourselves, but being able to be gracious uh, to other people. So this will be my final illustration. In the book of Judges, in Judges 6, 7, and 8, there's one judge by the name of Gideon. There's only one other judge who receives more um, biblical texts attributed to him than Gideon. That's uh, Samson. And I want you to know that judges were like kings. This was a, a proleptic foreshadowing of the monarchy about the kings. And so you need to understand that the book of Judges, the very last verse in 21-24, says something like, uh, uh, they, there were no kings in Israel and they did whatever was right in their own eyes. The end, what a downer of a story. The story ends like that. There are no kings, they did whatever they want, the end. So when you read a story like that, the natural question that you're supposed to ask is, uh, is there a sequel? Right, like Sherlock? It's like, you can't just bring in the brother. And for Mary to die, sorry, spoiler. There has to be some sort of continuation. Right? And so, um, and so the whole point is, is that, yes, there will be a perfect judge who's going to come. There will be a perfect, perfect king. That's the point. That's why, again, you can't just preach from the book of Judges without making a connection to Jesus. Pretty obvious. The book itself ends that way. It's begging for the answer. Is there a perfect judge who's going to come and we don't have to go through this cycle over and over again? Somebody will break the cycle? Yeah, there is. But look at the story of, of Gideon. It's not what you think. Again, we can't read the story of Gideon moralistically. If you do, then it's going to mean it's going to be that kind of funny story of Gideon and his fleece and, and how he went out there with 300 valiant soldiers and all that. No, it has nothing to do with that. They were a bunch of cowards. Gideon was a frail, weak, afraid, fearful person. Oh, I come from the weakest tribe. Oh, you know, what's going on? Look at all the Midianites are doing all of this. You know, what are you going to do? They're oppressing us, deliver us. So God actually responds. So be careful what you ask. Right? Because if God responds and then he says, okay, I'm responding, do this. And then don't be like, I don't want to do it. Well, you asked. So God's responding. And so, um, so God says, yep, you're the solitary champion. What? Yep, you're going to be the one who's going to deliver the Israelites. And, uh, and he's like, do you not know there are 135,000 Midianite soldiers? So he gets all scared, and he tells him to get rid of all the idols in his father's home. And, of course, he does it at nighttime because he's a valiant, courageous individual. He didn't want to get caught and get beat up. So, so he does that at nighttime, and then he disappears. Uh, and then he says, well, can you do something for me? You know, let me put out a fleece and, and at night, and, and uh, if, if the, the, uh, the fleece gets wet and the ground is dry, and uh, then, then I'll know that you're going to be with me, and there'll be victory and all that. And he does that, and then what happens? There's moisture due on top of that, and he squeezes it out. And, and so you would think, 
right? He was testing God, all right? That's not, again, so Gideon's fleece is a negative example. Don't be like, oh, I need to, I need to kind of put out a fleece here, you know, for the Lord to respond. No, not that that's the point of the story, but it's not even a positive example. You're not supposed to be doing that. And then after that, that happens. You would think, oh, that, that's sufficient. God kind of showed a sign. He said, can you do it the other way? So God does it the other way. So he says, gather all the men, all the ones who can go out there and fight for Israel. 32,000 men. And God says, you have too many soldiers. So go back to them and tell them, anyone who wants to go and not, not be a part of this battle against the Midianites, 135,000, they're free to go. I'm not going to judge them, just they can go. So they're like, really? Like, I can go. I don't need to participate in this. Yep, 10,000. Okay, I'm out of here. 10,000 just left. They're down to 22,000. And God, God says, too many. Uh, and uh, I might be getting the numbers wrong here, but, but whatever. It, it came down to 10,000. He said, I want you to take the 10,000 men, go out and do some training with them out in the wilderness, and, and go to, at the end of the day, go to a brook, a river, and, and uh, the ones who kind of lap the water like this, they're the ones that you're supposed to go into battle with the Midianites. But the other ones who just kind of get down, and, and they're the ones uh, just kind of drink the water that way, they're not the ones that, that'll go with you. So what happens? 300 out of the 10,000, they kind of lap the water this way. The other 9,700, they're in the water. You know, they're just kind of drenching themselves and drinking all that. So 9,700, God said they can go. And you're like, wow, these 300 courageous soldiers, they're the ones probably, you know, with a sword in one hand and then the water or this way, you know, looking, being on guard. But all those other people, careless soldiers, 9,700 of them, they weren't doing that. A Jewish exegete actually had said, could it possibly be the other way? that the other 9,700 soldiers were training so hard that they were so thirsty by the end of all their work, working out and training that they were so thirsty where these 300 people who weren't training hard, you know, they were thirsty. I'll just drink a little bit of water this way. Now, I don't know what the case is. My only point is that if you read the biblical text moralistically, you have to read it that way. But that's not the point, is it? The point is God could have dwindled that number down to 100, would there have been victory? 50? Would there have been victory? 30? Like, there's a big difference between 30 and 300 against 135,000, right? The point is he could have gone out there with one solitary champion. A fearful, frail individual like Gideon, and he still would have accomplished his work. And you know how... You know, they all fled and they won, and you know that story. However, after the story, the story doesn't end there. After this story, all of the Israelites come and say, oh, we love Gideon. We beat the Midianites, 300 against 135,000. We beat them, and, and they say, oh, please rule over us. Let your children rule over us. And, uh, and what does... Uh, what does Gideon say? And, and uh, one commentator kind of described it this way, very, very helpful. And, 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 and Gideon said, no, no, I'm not going to rule over you. And you're like, wow, what a humble leader he is. He had the opportunity to pretty much lead these people, but oh, he deferred and he wasn't about self-promotion. But what he did was, 
Okay, that's not what it seems, it's not what it seems like. He told all the people to, hey, bring all your jewelry. He melted down the gold, and he created an ephod, which a priest is supposed to wear. He put it on himself, and the text says that that ephod, with all the valuable jewels, the gold melted down, became a snare to the Israelite people. Not what you think. Got to read it in context. And then later on, he had a son with a concubine. And then he named him Abimelech. Now again, the Israelite people come to him and say, hey, you know, Gideon, please rule over us and may your children rule over us. Oh no, I'm, I'm not going to rule over you. Oh, by the way, have you met my son? His name is Abimelech. Abimelech, my father is king. Hey, have you met my son? I'm not going to rule over you. Have you met, met my son? Uh, my father is king. Story is not what you think it means. The point here is that God was still willing to use someone like Gideon to accomplish his work because grace comes to the weak. Pathetic, cowardly leaders and people like us. So where's the punishment? Where's the discipline, as one commentator has said? Where is it? No, it just says he was, he kind of lived to a long um, kind of old age, and he was buried with his fathers. Well, where's, where's the discipline? Where's the judgment that fell on Gideon? He just died peacefully with his fathers. Which shows me, friends, if you want to have a counter-cultural posture and counter-intuitive posture to an observing world that is absent of grace in a graceless world, the only thing that will have power is to be a countercultural community of God's grace. There's no other power. There's, you can't go out there and say, hey, we're self-righteous, we're better than you. No, there's, there's nothing that's more powerful than a humble community of God's people who are more concerned about the interests of others than their own. Heart of service. If we have received much grace, then we should be the most gracious people of all. What I find intriguing in our ecclesial tradition is we highlight the doctrines of grace. We're all about the doctrines of grace. We're very gracious people when we talk about the doctrines of grace. If we love the doctrines of grace, don't you, don't you think that like, we should be the most gracious people? I really do. That is the most powerful witness of a missional Christian a missional community that is trying to engage a world that is so foreign. So the women are studying through the uh, book of 1 Peter where it talks about being exiles. We are resident aliens in this world. We're resident because we're citizens of this country, but we have dual citizenship. We're also aliens, and we're citizens of the commonwealth of heaven. So there's always that tension. And the one thing that is going to speak very, very directly and fruitfully is to have a posture of grace. And wisdom is needed. You don't always have to speak the truth every single time. You need wisdom to know when to speak the truth. Because you can speak the truth at the wrong time, and that's kind of foolish. So we need to reach out, be gracious, to communicate, to listen, to learn, and to love. That's what we're called to be. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you give us uh, the privilege of being in 
covenantal relationship with you because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for this community. I'm grateful that they are willing to be bold and courageous enough to have a, a conference on culture. It's a little risky, but thank you for the vision that you've given. Thank you for the fruit and the growth uh, that you've provided for this church. I pray that you would uh, guide the leaders, the pastors, the elders, uh, to be able to, to have a, a, a robust, huge gospel vision uh, for Lexington, for their city, and for this particular secular culture. Help them to love well. Help them to be a gracious counter-cultural community. Help them to be able to be a missional church that is willing to, to understand the storyline of their city, to, to uh, discourse in the vernacular, to be able to enter into their story, to destabilize and restabilize with the gospel, that they might be able to theologically train people for vocational life and ministry, and, and that they would be able to be a countercultural community of God's grace. Would you allow this church to be that kind of a city on a hill, uh, a church uh, that will shine brightly uh, for the good uh, of the city and for the church and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.